0: Welcome to Episode 101 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, Our podcast will consist entirely today of the Beer Summit, the Triple Entente Beer Summit, that we are holding with our um, podcast partners uh, at Rational Security and Lawfare. Uh, So uh, without further ado, Enjoy. Welcome to the Triple Entente Beer Summit uh, here at the Washington Firehouse. Uh, uh, this is with Shane Harris. Shane, say, say hello.
1: hello. I'm Shane Harris of Rational Security. Good to be here. And Ben Wittes. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. And Tamara Wittes.
2: Hi, I'm Tamara Wittes of Rational Security.
3: And Alan Cohn. Hi, I'm Alan Cohn of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast.
0: And I'm Stuart Baker, holding the record for returning to the Beer Summit more times than any other lawyer. <laughs> We're also here with a great audience, and we will be turning over the last uh, portion of the uh, uh, show to the audience and their questions. Uh, uh, but let's jump right in the um issue, I guess I should say, uh, uh, the Rational Security Podcast is famous for the people who do not sponsor them, and uh, this segment of the uh, uh, podcast is not brought to you by Apple and the iOS. <laughs> uh, uh, why don't we start out by talking about the uh, the biggest security issue of the day, which is Apple's uh, uh, the bitter fight to avoid security. Uh, uh, providing access to law enforcement to one of the San Bernardino shooters' uh, iPhones. Uh, Ben, uh, why don't you introduce the topic?
1: Well, um, so Apple, uh, two days ago, we thought had gotten itself out of this particular confrontation with the government. There had been a litigation in the Eastern District of New York uh, last year in which Apple uh, refused to help uh, give material from a seized phone, uh, that case kind of withered away, and we thought it was uh, a, a, the sort of shot not taken in the going dark debate and Then yesterday or two days ago, the FBI and the Justice Department came forward with what is really I think one of the more remarkable briefs to come out of the Justice Department in the years that I have covered the Justice Department as either a journalist or an analyst. Um, and basically saying that since the San Bernardino shootings they have had one of the shooters' phones, they have the consent of the uh, owner of the phone, which was the employer of the of the shooter. Uh, they have a warrant so there's no legal problem, and they have a means of getting into the phone which requires exactly one thing of Apple, and that is that Apple disable the uh, Number of password attempts that you can make before the phone does its sort of mission impossible self-destruct, and that Apple refuses to do that, Um, and the result is uh, now that it's gone to the court for an All Writs Act order uh, for technical assistance to force Apple to do that, and Apple has responded with a uh, really quite bitter and uh, dramatic statement from Tim Cook that they will fight this. And you can see the sort of Cupertino pitchforks and f- torches lit and and bared. Uh, and I, I think we're headed for a real showdown between the company and, and the Justice Department now.
0: So, Shane, let me ask you, uh, uh, what – to the extent that anybody here has contact with the real world, I think it's probably you, uh, what is the reaction in the real world to this? Is this seen as um, uh, Apple standing up for our civil liberties and I'm glad I pay $200 more than my phone is worth because they do that? Uh, or it, it, are people saying, what, this is terrorism and, and you can do it, you should just do it?
4: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, <clears throat> just anecdotally, I will say, I mean, I've been covering the story this week a bit, but... I've been surprised by the number of conversations I've actually had with friends who generally are very skeptical of government surveillance authority who just said, I think Apple's wrong. I was actually surprised by that. I think there's a lot of again this is not a scientific example but i mean there certainly must be out there in the public uh to some extent people who feel like this is an important case um this is a you know an isis uh, agent or at least isis inspired person in the united states who murdered uh, was it 14 people i mm-hmm. believe in a major terrorist attack in the united states there's clearly a compelling interest in getting the information and i'm not really sure whether or not apple has kind of really articulated what is, you know, at stake from their perspective in this and maybe overcome some of that? I mean, the, the headlines have really been more about, you know, ISIS will not unlock terrorist phone. Well, what I found was so interesting though, in covering this this week, is if you go back and you look at the history of Apple's compliance with the government when it's served with a, in order to unlock an iPhone, they've historically been very compliant with that. Um, I think it's some 70 times by the government's estimate since 2008 that they've actually unlocked iPhones.
0: So, so, so what 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 they're saying is, those cases we were willing to help, but now that you come to us with the biggest mass killing by terrorists in the United States since uh, 9-11, and no, uh, we don't think so. They're not exactly saying that, surprisingly, <laughs> no. Um,
4: but, you know, th- and this is a different case. This is a different operating system. It would require Apple doing uh, more things to the phone to unlock it and get the data than it has in previous cases. But essentially, the government is still asking the same thing, which is get us the information on the phone. And Ben alluded to this previous case from 2015 that was sort of withering away, where Apple kind of... For the first time in 70 times raised an objection and said no we don't want to do this anymore and I don't think it's quite fleshed out what happened there. But this is a really profound case that has, you know, implications far beyond just the San Bernardino case. I'm really surprised by what I'm sure F- the FBI considers its good fortune that finally the case where you make a stand on the so-called dreaded going dark program is not just some phone of some nobody who was involved in, you know, maybe a petty crime or even a drug deal. It's the San Bernardino killer. I mean, this really is – the stakes could not be higher for this.
1: Although I, I do think it's worth noting that last week in an almost unnoticed, except by uh, Susan Hennessey, uh who's sitting over there, uh, comment in front of the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee um, – Comey, uh, the FBI director, gave another example that I think is really powerful and striking in a completely different way. It's an example of a eight-month pregnant woman in Louisiana who is murdered, uh, and the local police have no leads on who killed her, um, except that she was found with her phone, which is an iPhone that they can't unlock. And so they literally have no basis to proceed in the investigation, Uh, and so I think between those two examples, you actually see kind of vividly the range of the of the going dark problem in 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 a sort of non hypothetical way that was sort of not available two months ago.
0: So let me let me ask you this: Uh, um, the argument that that Apple makes is this. Capability doesn't exist now and if we are forced to create it, we will loose it on the world and it will be used by um, evil governments and others to get access to iPhones everywhere and uh, destroying the security of iPhone users. Uh, um, eh, and I've heard people take quite seriously the idea that uh, um, once we do this, China and Russia will be right behind uh, ordering Apple to
2: do the same thing. You know, can I just yeah. step in on that as, as someone who's spent uh, a bit of time hanging out in autocratic regimes? Um, what
4: are your favorite vacation spots. Yeah,
2: they are. But, you know, what dissidents in these countries will tell you is that if they get picked up by the cops and suspected, um, yes, immediately the cops take their phone. And you know what they do next?
0: Rubber hose cryptography.
2: Right. <laughs> they say, give me your passcode. Right. Um, so, 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 it's, so, it's,
1: so they're not waiting with bated breath for Apple's scope of the all Ritz Act exactly. to be determined. Exactly.
2: So, you know, it it seems to me that's a bit of a red herring argument. Also, of course, these autocratic governments are monitoring what their citizens are posting on Facebook, what they're posting on Twitter. Um, If they can, they they already try to get to the servers through which they send email. So I have to ask, how much does Apple's end-to-end encryption really help?
3: But but I think we may be not, not going beyond the bounds of our table here, and I'm surprised that Shane um, didn't have more, on the fact that there's a huge constituency of people who believe that Apple is doing not only exactly the right thing, uh, but the thing they're waiting for somebody to stand up and do on their behalf, uh, which is to say that governments don't have a place in these phones. Now, leaving aside the the merits, which we'll we'll debate extensively, I think we do have to recognize that there is a constituency of people who believe that's a legitimate position for the company to be taking. Well,
0: they
2: they, they believe that they want somebody to take that position, but, but I don't think that's necessarily the same thing as it being a legitimate position for a company to take. They want this symbolic gesture of somebody standing up and shaking their fist at the man. So,
0: well, that, so, that would be that would be everybody who voted for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. It's a pretty no, big, no, 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 a but big but constituency.
1: But, so, Ben, what is here? I think there's a, uh, there's a very deep truth in, in, in that. And it is the, the the idea that I've been flirting with for the last couple of weeks is that there's a very precise analogy between Apple and the uh, crypto-libertarian constituencies and the gun manufacturers and uh, Second Amendment enthusiasts. And the analogy works like this. Uh, These are both device manufacturers, uh, uh, product manufacturers of products that uh, there is some constitutional entitlement to use and um, that has very legitimate defensive purposes that also have um uh, uh collateral consequences for public safety that are non trivial that whose enthusiasts and um uh, systematically discount the consequences to public to those public safety issues and uh who make a very very deep uh uh, judgment that their ability to use these devices is the paramount definition of liberty, over and above anything else that any interest may have, and and I think that's a um, that relationship between oh, oh and that Congress has given a, a, a in every other context bizarre degree of immunity to the manufacturers for the behavior of third parties using their products, and I think there's a There really is a uh, a, a deep relationship between Apple and uh, a constituency of people who believe in a kind of libertarian approach to to, to these technologies that is uh, worth taking very seriously. It's, it's 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 going to be a huge political impediment to any approach other than a laissez-faire one. So it, it, it's, it, it, what you're getting at is the idea that there's a
0: kind of, I, this is a little bit more uh, 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 derogatory than I mean it, but the kind of tribal connection between the consumers and the company and a, a, it's a way of a symbolically expressing identity to use and uh, enter into either a crypto culture or a gun
1: culture. I think, I think if you take... An NRA statement and an EFF statement about encryption, and you redact key words. The average person in this room would have a very hard time determining which was which was the statement about the right to use cryptography, and which was the statement about the right to own guns.
3: Although, ironically, I think, and this is this is Alan, um, the the Second Amendment. Uh, enthusiasts and the and the gun manufacturers would find more constitutional footing for their position than uh, the manufacturer of the of the iphone right because in this case i mean
0: all of the constitutional protections and then some are already available uh to the government to get access to the uh, to the phone
3: right and the the individual the individual whose privacy rights would ultimately be violated. No longer has those rights, and didn't have them from the beginning because it was not his device, and he was clearly on notice that he did not have a privacy interest in the activities that he transacted on the phone. Well,
0: you know, because among other things, his employer has said, it's our phone, go, go ahead and look at it, and this is kind of interesting and for those of you who want to uh, uh persuade your employers that uh that this is not a uh, th- this is a reason not to support apple uh what apple is saying is not only screw the us government but screw your employers too uh we're with the employees and uh if the employer buys the phone it's still the employee who gets to lock it and uh if the employee dies or uh, heads off to brazil with half the funds and the company uh
3: we're not going to help the employer get into the phone. Or if the individual says, I'm going to use the phone in 10 minutes to destroy the network of the employer right. who owns the
1: phone, we I'm find not, ourselves in the same position. I, I, it'll be interesting what happens when that employer is Apple.
2: so let me ask not
0: not that that's inciting uh, inciting in any way action by (laughs) Apple employees
2: certainly not so now Apple's raised the stakes they've made they've taken an issue that was already very polarized in terms of the government industry conversation and they've made this very public very symbolic political argument Um, and as Ben and Susan point out in, in their post on Lawfare today this really um, dumps it in the lap of Congress, and it, and it heightens the imperative for Congress to act. So Congress is going to be acting on this presumably in an election year, in an environment where the American public post-San Bernardino is expressing a lot of fear, um, it strikes me that maybe Apple didn't have very good political timing in upping the ante I, I, right Well, now.
0: maybe, unless you think that they, that they believe that all publicity on this issue is good for them, uh, which I think that's what they believe.
2: But
3: I, I also think, and, and I've gotten quizzical looks on this, so you feel free to give, the, give them more tonight, is that they're also heading into a moment on the other side where the Supreme Court's already begun to opine on the idea that the smartphone is different. That yeah. the smartphone is not your briefcase. The smartphone is not your telephone. The smartphone is like your house. The smartphone is like the inner sanctum of your house, where your where your most your things you're entitled to the most amount of privacy. It's your um, cat
2: videos. <laughs> I have a right to privacy for my cat videos. Okay. Can so, I ask you
3: to say, oh sorry go ahead? Uh, no no no. So I would just say that I that I'm not sure that that Apple has misjudged the the um. The moment, I think it's, it points out yet again if, and Stewart's analogy to the Trump Sanders, uh, successes in the early primaries go that, that Apple ha- may have realized or may just be, be a player in a larger drama that shows just a stark division and thinking among different elements of the popular.
4: As a procedural matter, I mean, Apple has till Tuesday, I think, to respond, uh, to, to, to the judge in this case. The, the, the warrant's been, the warrant right. been issued. They have a chance to respond. If the judge in that case, and as I say many times in the podcast, I'm not a lawyer, uh, decides, nope, you have gotta do this, gotta execute the warrant, that's it. And Apple says no. Who's in contempt? Does Tim Cook get thrown in a jail cell
0: until they comply? I... Though the company could be held in contempt and just fined, and um, you know the the most effective fines I've seen are the ones that say it'll be ten thousand today and twenty thousand tomorrow and forty thousand the next. Which day. I would imagine Apple would welcome. The opportunity well, to pay that uh, fine.
4: Well, once it gets up to yeah.
0: a billion, it starts to hurt.
4: Well, how long is that going to take? That's a long
0: time. Well, <laughs> uh, thirty
3: days is my guess.
4: So. <laughs> well, could the judge find a, you a billion dollars a day in
3: contempt? Uh, well, it is a company yeah, with two hundred fifteen some... billion dollars of cash on hand. Yeah, hands. exactly. So, oh, oh, yeah. That's could be interesting.
0: Okay, <laughs> it could be quite a waiting game. I I don't think that that, that, that will happen. But uh, well, what is at it, what some do you, point, it, they will say, "Okay, we lost." Right, and they'll
4: and they'll go on with it. And I just I just think that from a if there is a grand strategy on Apple's part playing out here and one presumes there probably is because this is a company that's all about public image and reputation, I'd have to imagine that maybe Tim Cook has looked at this and said, yeah, we may lose this in the courts but we may win this reputationally. And, you know, they have in fact staked a claim saying if you make us do this it could harm our business reputation which is a very interesting you know rationale for not having to comply with a warrant. I'm not sure the judge is going to find that persuasive. Well, the,
0: the other thing that's going on here is this is an old iPhone and this fix is only good for the old iPhone. Uh, if you wanted to get into a modern iPhone...
4: It's a 5C, right? You, if you, you want to get into you, a 6, right.
0: yeah. You, you would have to... I, I, I don't understand the Apple uh, ecosystem because I'm that not...
2: Everyone in the crowd is now pulling out their phones yes. and trying to figure out which... We're <laughs>
0: so glad you are. didn't upgrade, right? <laughs> really, get a, just get an Android, really. It's, it's cheaper and it works just as well. Uh, and remarkably, Google has been bullied into saying something nice about apple but they've been surprisingly measured in their praise for apple's stance so uh my guess is they are uh, uh a little bit dis- disappointed about the way this is playing out but apple is already has already built uh technology that will be even harder though not impossible for apple to uh, uh get into on behalf of law enforcement the next time this happens. All right, let's turn to, uh, speaking of getting into things, uh, uh, the uh, New York Times and a new film that is just uh, debuting uh, has <clears throat> told the story of something called Nitro Zeus, which was apparently an enormous campaign, according to the uh, film and according to the New York Times since, uh, an enormous campaign to break everything in Iran if we had to go to uh, 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 battle stations with Iran as an alternative to letting uh, Israel bomb uh, nuclear facilities around the country. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Shane, you've covered this story. I, um, I, can you give us a little more detail on that?
4: Yeah. Um, so Nitro Zeus, which it sounds like an energy drink um, or a pro wrestler, I'm not sure. But um, I just love the names, by the way, the code names people come up with. So, yes. this The is, smell is, of Nitro Zeus. Yeah, Nitro Zeus. <laughs> this sounds very serious. Um, uh, so, yeah, this is a plan that was going to be developed and, and put into effect by U.S. Cyber Command, which was basically should the negotiations with Iran over the nuclear problem break down. We kind of had this in our pocket. And what's, it'll sound to a lot of people like Stuxnet and the Olympic Games program where NSA and Israel are believed to have developed a computer worm known as Stuxnet that goes in and disables centrifuges in the Natanz enrichment facility. But this sort of took it even farther. We were going to get into the Fordo facility. We were going to shut down the telecommunications system in Iran, the power grid, you know, basically what you would imagine sort of an all out, you know, campaign of cyber war and destruction on critical infrastructure in Iran, which raised, you know, many interesting questions like, Is that collateral damage to civilian populations? Is this an act of war? Um, It's a little hard for me to discern from the early reporting on this and the sort of sneak peeks of the documentary film, which is done by a well-known documentarian named Alex Gibney, uh, and who I know of his producer on this, has worked on this for a couple of years now, so I'm looking forward to it, how serious this was, how far along it was, how much with this, this sort of was pie in the sky, but... You know, it was a plan on the shelf, and at how close we got to it, we may have to. Do, uh, they figure. spent
0: hundreds of millions of dollars on it. Yeah, well, maybe, I mean, it's a real, it's that's a real, not so hard, you know, it's but. a
4: real deal. But I mean, I guess the question is, you know, at what point? I mean, how close did we get to pulling the trigger on it? Is one thing that I would really like to know. But what I'm just struck by is two things. One, there was a part of me that was not surprised at all by this because I, you know, this is what. The NSA and Cyber Command do. We map critical infrastructure. We figure out how to take out people's power grids. We figure out how to use these capabilities. So there's a part that says, well, sure, we did something like this. It's good, it was good that we had that. And the other is, holy crap. You know, do we almost actually come to the point where we were going to basically take Iran offline? So this and is imagine this what that would have okay, been like. But wait
1: a minute. We're, we're, we're burying the big question. The lead. Where did the name Nitro Zeus come from? Cuz that's what everybody here wants to know.
2: Is it from the random military operation name generator?
1: Well, I, yeah. I, I hope love so. it. Yeah. I, I think it's like the best name. So there's
0: a there's a whole family of mal- malware named after Zeus. But none of it is
1: nitro <laughs> But this is nitrosis. I mean, this is some serious-ass Zeus.
3: <laughs> but but what, is, so this is, what is surprising everyone at the table about the fact that that the U.S. government created a campaign plan for a potential military operation and that it costs million, a couple hundred million dollars to, to, to flip the meter once you start doing a campaign plan? That sounds cheap, right? It sounds like a bargain. Well, it's, uh, com- it's a
2: lot cheaper than a conventional right?
3: Sure. Yeah. I, I, so I, it, it does.
0: It occurs to me that with as we put together Stuxnet, which actually happened, and this, which was ramped up in 2009, the Obama administration must have come in, and in the way of new administrations, determined not to do all the stupid things that the last guys did, but to do new stupid things. I and. Um, they found this capability which had not been exposed and fell in love with it it was yeah. used in stuxnet and then they said wow if it works in stuxnet we can do, we can do it in a really big way, and then um Harold Coe at the State Department, and perhaps some others started to say, "Oh, wait a minute, you know this is disproportionate uh, uh this could cause civilian harm, maybe this is not a weapon you should be using and I gather that that was a big part of the debate that may have held up deployment of this uh or at least Use of it at, a, at a, uh, uh, for a significant period of time.
1: All right. So, show of hands or, or, sh- or volume of applause from the audience. Do you guys find this totally unsurprising? All right. So, so who looks at Nitro Zeus and says, "Wow, that's surprising"? We got okay. one. Yeah, we'll go. yeah. We got one. I think think the not surprising... You're a protest (laughs) vote. (laughs) That's right. Trump voter. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, so I want to say one thing about... This is Wittis again. I want to say one thing about Alex Gibney, um, which is... The the, filmmaker. The filmmaker. Um, He did... His movie about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange is one of the best pieces of filmmaking I have ever seen uh, in the documentary national security space. And he clearly went into it with the idea that he was going to do some kind of hagiography. Hey, and the facts led him in a very different direction. And he followed it. And it's an incredibly moving and interesting film uh, that uh, makes me, gives him a lot of credibility with me in taking on a subject like this.
4: And his producer, we should just say, Javier Potero, who is on this. I mean, I've known him for a couple of years now. and. He has talked to all the right people, so I think that the reporting on this immediately has a patina
0: of credibility. It's exactly. amazing to keep a secret like that, yeah, for years while you're doing post-production yes. editing. Uh, it's it's remarkable.
4: Well, sure. I mean, and it's and it's a credit to them as for being good journalists that as they're talking to people and they surely must have realized that some people must have been out there on this that it didn't get out sooner. I mean, it's a hell of a scoop. I mean, I wish I had it.
2: Yeah, it's an inc- okay. So it's an incredible story. I have to ask the lawyers at the table, though, um, this. This was apparently being prepared, debated, uh, at the same time that the administration more broadly is trying to figure out how to develop norms around cyber warfare or the non-use of cyber warfare, uh, and is dealing with that issue with respect to countries like China that it worries could present a real threat to American infrastructure. So how do you think this story relates to the norm development around this issue? That, and did the administration care about that? That
0: was, the sta- that was what the State Department was doing. They said, we're trying, to, we're trying to build norms around this that say you don't do certain things, and now you've given us a war plan that says, uh, yeah, we might do some of those things. Come on. Uh, and uh, um, and this is exactly the problem with letting the State Department participate in war planning. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, we
2: hate international law. Well, b-
0: because the, uh, they announce aspirational goals for what, international law could be on a really good day. And then they say, and we're going to be living by those rules even if it costs us the next war. I, this is not not a uh, um, great military plan.
3: Well, so then is that the buried lead, not so much that the plan existed, but how did the debates play out? And, exactly. and I'd be curious how many people think, number one, this was uh, an example of, uh, you know, of, of, of great, you know, wrought, you know, kind of debate at the highest levels amongst peacetime norms and 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 wartime planning or was it simply just the balkanization of the policy process I, that allowed I'm, the two things right. to go on simultaneously? I, I'm
0: guessing that half those hundreds of millions of dollars was spent to satisfy the State Department that we really were living up to the norms. Okay. Uh, last topic uh, before we let the audience in. Uh, uh, Tamurai countering violent extremism that's been something um uh, that this administration has been uh, has has prided itself on being more enthusiastic about than the Bush administration, which was surprisingly enthusiastic about it. Uh, uh, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, um, efforts to change the direction and build a new countering violent extremism initiative. Uh, uh, can you take us into this issue?
2: Sure. So on Tuesday morning, uh, Tony Blinken, the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, gave a speech at Brookings and rolled out a new countering violent extremism or CVE strategy for state and USAID uh, and more broadly for the U.S. government. And I think it comes out of a couple of things. I mean, the administration is often criticized by uh, by Republicans who say, well, this whole label CVE is silly. You've got to be able to name the enemy, the enemy I, of I, I, do keep,
0: I do keep thinking, you know, maybe... Maybe that's my drugstore. <laughs> right. I feel violent and extreme every time I go into CBS. Right. Um,
2: but but I but or I think could what radicalize
3: label, you on the line. Yeah.
2: <laughs> what the label does recognize is that it's not just the terrorism, in other words, the behavior that we're targeting. There's an ecosystem here that we have to target, and uh, and and so as this administration kind of found itself going back into Iraq to fight ISIS, realizing that there was a new wave. Uh, to struggle with, and it's been saying, okay, this is going to be a generational battle. Well, then you've got to create the infrastructure for a generational battle beyond the military piece. And that, so that's what this was meant to unveil. There were five pillars of this strategy that Blinken laid out, including a new counter-messaging or at least a relabeled counter-messaging effort uh, in the State Department now called the Global Engagement Center, New research, notably social science research, folks, to understand the drivers of extremism. And actually, I found it refreshingly honest in Blinken's remarks, the extent to which he admitted that we don't know what drives radicalization. Uh, there are tons of hypotheses, but none of them have very good data, and so we need to do more thinking about this. How radical. Um New partnerships below the level of central governments, working with local communities, working with, uh, with local governments, new money for programs to address the underlying conditions that seem to put people at risk of radicalization. Um, but what really got me about the speech beyond the programmatic stuff was this bit at the end, which, Stuart, you, you referenced the Bush administration's effort, um, It it was more reminiscent of the Bush administration's thinking than anything I've heard from this administration on counterterrorism and CVE so far. And I'll just read you a couple of sentences from the end of Blinken's remarks. He said, ultimately at the heart of our strategy, at the center of each of these five pillars is a commitment to the principles that have underwritten an unprecedented era of greater peace and prosperity over the last seven decades, principles of good governance and pluralism, of the rule of law and fundamental freedoms, of human rights and human dignity. Uh, And then he warns about governments and leaders who use counterterrorism as an excuse to crack down, uh, says it fuels extremism, and he quotes President Obama saying the essential ingredient to real and lasting stability and progress is not less democracy; it is more democracy. Well, that sure sounded like a war of ideas to me.
0: Sounds, sounds to me like you're going to get the guys who wrote your fifth-grade civics textbook and give them Twitter accounts.
1: <laughs> right. So, like, what? Yeah. What What does it mean in practice? I mean, you know, is this a uh, bureaucratic r- rearranging of, 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 uh, as you said on rational security deck chairs on the Titanic, or as you might say in a more optimistic mode, a sort of, uh, bureaucratic rearranging of the, of the, of, of the flowchart, or is there a substantive point that meaningfully underlies it that you can look at as, as policy change?
2: You know, look, I think the Bush administration had an explicit premise that democracy would be an antidote to terrorism and they talked about you know the the whole freedom agenda was about trying to dry up the swamp that was the justification and i i don't think there was ever a lot of uh, of empirical support for that hypothesis and in any event it didn't get a very good test um so they're reviving the hypothesis but you know i I guess I have to wonder, do they mean it in that in that broad ideological sense that they believe openness and tolerance and pluralism makes people more resistant to the appeals of terrorists, or is it simply um, just a caveat of the overall strategy, which is we're going to keep working with the Egyptians and the Saudis and the Emiratis and all these other autocratic governments. Just, guys, don't take advantage, please. So I have a,
0: I have a, I have a completely different theory about what causes radicalization, and I'm delighted to, uh, that for the first time I can cite the good wife uh, on the <laughs> podcast because – there was a great moment, really tiny and you, you could easily miss it, where one of the bad girls is talking to, uh, one of the good girls, uh, and she says, oh, I can, I can tell you how to get your parents to give you anything you want. Just play two minutes of this CD. And she puts the CD on and it is an Islamic Call to prayer. Uh, And and that's it, they just move on. uh, But, you know, the idea that this is, this is uh, an act of adolescent rebellion. This is the thing your parents are scared of, so Uh by God you ought to embrace it. And that has enormous appeal. It's kind of uh, goth for the 2015s. Uh, uh, And uh, I think uh, the key to kind of taking away that appeal is, is mockery. Uh, uh, people should you, know, you should you should make them look like idiots, and that, then they're, they they can't be the hot guys anymore. They can't be the hot chicks. They are the idiots. Uh, so it's that like would a be a massive my campaign of trolling. Exactly. No, <laughs> yeah.
4: that's right. We should
0: get that Russian troll farm yeah. Yeah. to go look to work on, a on that. Job for you, Me sir. and Chris are going <laughs> together <laughs> at last. All right. Any other comments on CVE, or can we open it up to the audience and questions?
2: Well, I'll just throw out one last uh, way to interpret this new effort, which is that CVE is now the development programming flavor of the month, and that counterterrorism is the new way to justify budget for nighttime basketball, education programs, job programs, you know, adolescent welfare programs. Stuart, uh, if, yeah, midnight, if midnight basketball it lasts back. So, that's, so, so. tomorrow, so
1: tomorrow, this is the this is great. This binds the whole. Triple Entente Beer Summit podcast together. All we need to do is call the Justice Department's brief on an Apple an exercise in countering violent extremism there and then go. Apple will have to comply. <laughs> there we go. All right. <laughs>
0: Everybody wins. <laughs> Thank you for that wrap-up, uh, Ben Wittes. And now, at last, we are going to hear from uh, people who collectively, for sure, and probably individually, are smarter than the panelists. So uh, with that.
1: Least we uh, hope so. Uh, we also yeah.
4: invite your invitation to mockery <laughs> at the <laughs> microphone. Yeah, th-
1: this, yes, this is please. your chance to mock any of us with impunity. Uh, there is a Wait, microphone. You can, mock, you can mock Ben with impunity, and you can mock me, but uh, don't count on impunity. <laughs> there, there, there is a microphone right here, but you have to get up and walk over to it. It actually does
2: not have legs.
0: All right, uh, We have so you have one legs. Brave Come on man. up. You have a brave Come soul.
2: Forward. And introduce yourself, please.
0: Uh, yeah, turn just turn it around. Yeah.
5: I am David. Hey, David. Hey, David. Uh, I work at a think tank called Third Way. So I have two questions. Looking beyond this single app case, which we know is not necessarily about encryption per se, toward the broader encryption debate, first question, telecom companies always get what they want. Do we have a reason to believe internet companies aren't going to get what they want? Now, recently with net neutrality, telecom companies aren't winning. But with the FAA, they got retroactive immunity. They tend to win. Why won't that happen with Google, Facebook, and Apple? And the second question is, there's no data on how often encryption is a problem. We have the Chattanooga case. We have the eighth the pregnant woman. We have San Bernardino. And then we have Cyrus Vance saying 74 iPhones in a period. He doesn't say whether the iPhones prevented any further investigation. Is anyone trying to compile a better database that shows us the cost and benefits of encryption? Because if we don't know the cost and benefits... How can we construct policy that weighs the costs and benefits? And those are the, that
4: great
2: sounds work. like a great Lawfare project. <laughs> then,
4: uh, so I, well, I was, was going to comment on the first question, and you're right to, by the way, bring up that this is not necessarily an encryption debate per se. Insofar as the government's not acting, asking Apple to decrypt the phone, they're asking it to hack the phone. Um, but you know, if Apple were a telecommunications company, it would have to comply. I mean, under Kalia, it would have to do that. And, in fact, and it's in the New York case from last year, it goes about saying, like, well, look, under Kalia, we're actually an information services provider, um, so we don't really, you can't really, com- I, mean, I guess they're trying to get at the argument of whether they can be compelled to provide technical assistance uh, under law, which I gather the all Writs statute is sort of there to kind of be a stopgap to that. But I mean, I think the heart of your question is, you know, they're a big, huge, powerful company, and aren't they going to prevail because they have political influence and they have reputation? And you know, I, I wonder about that too. I mean, it, you know, I would imagine if you're the, the magistrate in this case, you're treading very carefully on this. No.
1: So I, I, I think the, I, I have a couple thoughts on both questions. On, on the first question, I actually think the premise of the question is not correct. Um, the, 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 the. the uh, The idea that the the telecoms always win, Uh, to the extent that it's true, it is also true that the telecoms have a uh, legally mandated, very close relationship that requires them to do certain things. And in exchange for it, they get all kinds of immunities and protections. But these these issues don't arise with the telecoms because there's Kalia. Right. And because Congress said, A, you have to help and B, we'll pay you to do it. And if anyone sues you, you win. Um, and the same thing happened in, in the FISA Amendments Act. Right. Like, you know, to a certain extent with the Internet companies. Um, but so so I think the question is, like from, from the government's point of view, the government would love to have a relationship with the Internet companies that's a lot more like the relationship with the telcos, which is to say tightly integrated, uh, they function as arms when needed of investigative authority, and they are protected in law in a hundred ways, as you describe. On your second question, the uh, FBI has spent a lot of time trying to come up with um, – you know, they've been asked, and I think fairly, to show what the need and what the use, case, what the real cases are. And it's a very hard thing to do um, because if you have a bunch of uh, pro- problems that eventually got solved by other means, you don't necessarily that you know the, if you eventually cracked a case and it took a long time and you know that there was this phone that you couldn't get into that may have caused it to be a two-day case rather than a two-year case, you're not willing to say the fact that we got a good outcome in that case eventually means there's no problem. Um, you feel like there was a real problem, and yet when you draw attention to that case, somebody says, wait a minute, you got a conviction with a 40-year sentence. What's the problem? But from the, inter- the, the internal perception of what where the problem was and the fact that the problem may have had some other resolution is uh makes it very hard to count in addition a lot of the cases are still pending right they're they they're continuing to look for answers and the fact that they're uh you know they don't really know what's on the phone of that dead woman in louisiana right maybe the answer is nothing there's no good lead on it same with san bernardino so you have this problem of but for causation when you put those two problems together, it can be—it's very hard to come up with a list of the cases that would be different if things, you know, if the rules were different.
0: So I—I uh, I will offer just one mildly mischievous uh, suggestion. It's very hard, uh, for reasons Ben has expressed, to do a public weighing of costs and benefits. Uh, um, But if you wanted the costs and benefits to be weighed by somebody who could measure them quite clearly, uh, you should do something that Senator Whitehouse has uh, uh, suggested. Uh, uh, Just make the companies that manufacture the products or release the encryption liable for any crimes and acts of terrorism that are enabled by the products that they have sold. And then they will internalize the benefits of all the privacy that they're providing, and they'll internalize the costs as well. So, you know, we don't have to do a big debate. We can just let them uh, decide which is more important.
3: The problem is, of course, then you end up criminalizing the activities of, I don't know, like telephone providers and, and um, airlines and people who make cash, you know, things like that. <laughs> it is uh, a mischievous <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> lawyer. I, I, it but I do think the other point is, and, and I think, I think just to be fair, we have the luxury of kind of playing around with this idea of, well, how many times is this happening right now? I think to really engage in the public policy debate, you have to start from the assumption that there are and will be an increasing number of crimes and potentially terrorist incidents that involve individuals' use of encrypted communications uh, to communicate, to plot, to carry out attacks. With that assumption, what is the balancing of interests uh, with respect to the proper public policy? Because although I think that the, that the, that is a question that's worth engaging, the, the question of really how often is this happening is not one that's going to be worth asking for very long.
0: And, and, and there's that old saw. You know, the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Uh, uh, and the people who are victimized by encryption are probably experiencing the future faster than the rest of us. Okay, next question.
3: Hi, thanks for doing this. I'm Graham Markowitz. I'm a law student
4: and U.S. Army veteran. Um, It seems implausible or at least inconsistent that we, as the U.S. government, can shut down Iran but not unlock a two-year-old iPhone 5C. (laughs) Can
2: can you reconcile that for me?
4: (laughs) Well... I mean, we 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 may have the capability to unlock an iPhone 5C, and just don't necessarily want to use it in this case. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I've I've heard in the discussion, you know, people who are opposed, you know, I think I've said they have said this somewhat facetiously uh to forcing. Apple to hand over the contents, we'll just give it to the NSA and let them do it, like we would really want the NSA to intervene in a domestic criminal case. I mean, And the NSA, by the way, would not want to do that either. So, you know, it's possible. You know, and to your point, there's a very interesting, and we keep going back to this New York case um, involving Apple uh, where they wouldn't unlock an earlier version with running iPhone operating system 7, and the judge in that case pointed to yet another case where it was revealed that Homeland Security digital forensics experts actually think that they have and have used uh, a system that can unlock an iPhone 7 and possibly an iPhone 8. Uh, and it was kind of like, wait, where did that come from? And it's this very strange little exchange that happened in a totally unnoticed case. Um, but, yeah, maybe that they do in fact have that capability and just do not want to use it here. And I think the FBI and the Justice Department, I presume, are interested in probing you know, this case and the edges of what the law allows to get precedent on this and would rather be able to do it legally than having to rely on the guys at Fort Meade to crack it every time.
1: I also think the easy reconciliation of your question is that Iran has not yet upgraded to iOS. <laughs> Don't tell them. <laughs> Although the other thing that's
3: interesting from the from the reporting though is that in each case there is there is a discussion about the the unintended consequences and the collateral damages. In each in the in the um, San Bernardino iPhone case, there's concern that you know the we might get it wrong and and accidentally delete all the data. And in the in the Iran case, there's a concern that you know we might get it wrong and, and it might knock out the entire power grid and, and take the entire country offline. But there's strangely more angst about making a mistake in the San Bernardino case than there is in the Iran yes. case. So.
4: Can I just go on record, by the way, as saying that the Nitro-Seuss plan sounds effing crazy?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> like, you would don't do that. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's an act of war.
3: Really? Well, yeah, that's that's a war. That's that's why you would do just it.
4: Bomb yeah. a facility. Don't take okay. the freaking that, power. That's why power you
3: write on. a war plan. Yeah. <laughs> well,
4: that's true. Do that's do it, true. So. But like seriously, that is that is that's a cuckoo Town. Very cool, but crazy.
0: <laughs> okay. Next. All
3: right. Um I wanted to ask
4: two but attached just questions Just give us yourself, name, sorry? I'm, uh, Will Carter from CSIS. And I wanted to ask two questions about the Apple case. One is um, as much as people have drawn parallels between historical capabilities under clia to wiretap phone conversations, accessing someone's device, which can store data that they never intended to send through a third-party network, is different. Mm-hmm. And should this be looked at differently? And also, if you set a precedent that tech companies should be expected to create a bespoke piece of software at law enforcement request under the All-Rits Act, to access a device is that different than building a capability into a software product in order to facilitate surveillance? I'm curious about those
3: Good question. Well,
2: it kind of goes to your point, yeah. Alan, that it's not just a phone.
3: Right. Somebody's been reading Riley.
1: So. Right. So,
2: so, can I can I just say that I don't know anybody
1: who thinks that like it's a great idea, a good thing, to rely on the All Writs Act to do this uh, very challenging uh and everybody i think in a you know except maybe at apple um but i think any everybody in the us federal government uh, except maybe at the commerce department um uh you know if, if you put them under sodium pentothal, they would say we should this should be uh, done under a, under a statutory regime that's designed for the complexity of modern communications technologies um and um the All Act is a is a function of people not having the tools legally that they need to do the things that there are investigative exigencies that require them to do, and I don't think anybody, and, I don't, and certainly nobody serious, would say this is something without collateral consequences. This is something you know that you would choose to do in an ideal world. And, you know, remember, and I, and I say this with some defensiveness because when, when Comey did this, he came to Brookings and did it on a, you know, in a conversation with me. And so I, I, I actually have a sense of what he was trying to do when he started this conversation. And if you go back to what he said in the fall of, I guess it was 2014, he said, look, we have a problem and we don't really know what the right answer to it is, but we need to start a conversation about that. About this, and the response that he got, I think, from the unified uh, not quite unified, but from a wide swath of the silicon valley community is okay here 's you can take your conversation, Jason put in where the moon don 't shine and I, I, and, I, and I think there 's a um, you know there are process implications of that that eventually you know, the problem catches up with people and they feel like they have to do something and they look at the U.S. federal code and they say, okay, what's the, what's, what are the tools we have? And you know, what you've got is the technical assistance provisions of Title III, FISA and CALIA and you've got the All Ritz Act and those are some interesting pegs and they have interesting shapes and you're going to start shoving other those pegs into holes, whether they're the same shape or not, and and I think that's really the answer to your question. I no one will make an argument for this in principle. At least nobody should. Okay. More questions.
6: Hi, uh, Gabriel. I work on the Hill. Uh, I do not have a question, which is the worst way to start a panel Uh-oh. discussion <laughs> in uh, uh, in DC. I will just I will go back to a previous question, which is somebody asked: Is there a way to measure? the extent to which this is a problem, and the answer is yes. And to a caveated extent, it is already happening, which is that the U.S. federal court system does track wiretaps, and they do track, to the extent since the mid-1990s or so, um, cases in which they have encountered encryption and the number of cases to which that encryption is not breakable. Um, So the caveat being that this does not include FISA cases, but to the extent that the federal criminal courts and non-FISA cases come across uh, encryption, the answer is that there are a mid-single-digit number of cases every year where there are wiretaps. The cases in which they encounter encryption are in the low double digits. And the cases in which there are there is unbreakable encryption is occasionally zero, and usually in the very low single digit of cases.
0: So I, I, I've seen that, and, right. uh, and, and that's, it, I think that understates the problem quite right, substantially. Right,
6: exactly, which is why one way to look at this problem is to simply say that those numbers should be expanded to the extent that you know we should understand the problem, that those numbers should be published to the extent that they should be. So, for example, but the, I, the I, Hill I, could look at them... It, just to understand the extent to which that is a problem
0: I think the difficulty with it is not publishing the the, the numbers, but it it doesn 't account for the chilling effect that encryption has on law enforcement investigative tactics. Um, Every, every, practically every website that matters, uh, except those of us who don't like being bullied by Chris Segoyan, uh, has moved to SSL, TLS, uh, uh, certainly if you have something that you think somebody might steal in transit, you would want to do uh, uh, TLS encryption, which means that from the computer to the website is an encrypted link. That used to be a very productive uh, place to do wiretaps and to take information, both for U.S. law enforcement and for foreign law enforcement. There's no point anymore. Uh, there's no point in getting a wiretap for that communication because you're not going to be able to break the encryption. Uh, and so people go looking for something else there's really not much point in serving a wiretap order on most of the electronic messaging services that have gone to end in, end encryption because you know what the answer is going to be. Thank you for your order. I can't do anything for you. Well, nobody wastes their time getting paperwork that uh, in the end isn't going to produce anything. So I, my sense on that is um, the only time they – record the fact that they've encountered encryption and that it's thwarted their investigation is when they're surprised to encounter encryption. If they know they're likely to, then they probably aren't going to choose that method of investigation.
1: Uh, hi, my name is Doug. I'm an avid listener. Um, I was wondering, uh, when you spoke about how, I guess the fact that DOJ is relying on the All Writs Act here means that the problem is crying out for a legislative fix, what are some of the provisions that you would want to see uh, in that kind of legislation, and relatedly, in one of the recent rational security episodes you talked about um, uh, some conversations that we're having about uh, FISA reauthorization in a year or two, I, I wonder, I'm not sure exactly when that's happening, and do you think that this conversation is going to come up in the context of FISA as well? All
0: right, that's a deal. So, you.
1: so those, those are excellent questions. Um, so on, on, on your first question, the honest answer is I don't really know what the right, legislative approaches at this stage. And that's why I've, I've actually never taken the position, not because I'm being coy, I've never taken the position that, you know, there needs to be a performance standard in which companies have to be able to decrypt... I've never taken the view that I've I've sort of tried to explore a bunch of policy options without ever saying here's what I think the right answer is because I honestly don't know. I think the question is genuinely hard, and there's a lot and and a lot of different entities and interests have a lot of reasonable equities in the conversation. That said, uh, here's some things I think are ridiculous and you might and 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 i think i think if now we're, we're down to it right. this, this is what we're good at i, I think <laughs> I, th- I think if you i think if you call if you 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 may be able to call where i end up from the list of things i think are ridiculous so here's something i think is ridiculous ungoverned spaces suck okay and when when we call them yemen or the tribal areas of pakistan uh Nobody says, ah, what a great thing, human liberty, Somalia, (laughs) right? Nobody says, nobody makes an ideological argument for a zone of lawlessness. But somehow when you call it the Internet and the thing that makes it lawless is the fact that there's no identity verification of anybody and and you can't find out what people are doing because everything's encrypted end-to-end in an unbreakable fashion, even with a warrant. Uh, people talk about that as a triumph of human liberty. That's nonsense. Let's start with that. Number two, here's another thing that's nonsense. Um, we have given the tech companies, um, back in the late 1990s, uh, we gave them the most amazing gratuity that Congress has given to any interest group of any kind in probably you know since the baseball uh uh antitrust exemption uh and that was we gave them CDA 230 and CDA 230 said a tech platform cannot be held liable for anything that any of its third party users do as long as it did not specifically editorial contribute to it. So to give you an idea of how weird that is, when I worked for the Washington Post, we could be held liable for, an, you know, for a, a libelous um, uh, ad that we ran. That's you know, New York Times v. Sullivan, right? Was over an ad, not over the content of the New York Times. The NewYorkTimes.com or the WashingtonPost.com cannot be held liable for a libelous ad. That's how powerful um, and all of the modern Internet companies are built on the backs of this liability protection. So we've said to them, okay, you you are hereby immune for anything your users do on your platform. Now can you please help us investigate the conduct of your users on your platform for which you are immune? And their answer is no thanks. Um, and I think that basic trade is implausible in a world in which you actually somebody has to be responsible for investigating and policing what people are doing on these platforms. So I think you know that idea that you're immune, you're immune, and you don't have to help doesn't work. Um, and then finally. Uh, here's one last thing, and this, you know, uh, betray my anger at Apple today. You know, Apple issued a statement that said, we take what the FBI does very seriously, but. And what comes after the but is we don't take it so seriously that it means anything against our device security. And, um, you know, I don't believe in device security over everything else in the world. So the question, you know, I don't know whether that leads you to, all right, I think the answer is a backdoor performance requirement or relaxed CDA 230 immunity for people who don't do something. But I do believe there is a (coughs) civic obligation on the part of tech companies to not let their systems be used in fashions that are profoundly destructive of society. And I think there's – it boggles my mind – that that's a controversial proposition.
0: So I, I have to say, it wasn't just that they said they had respect for the FBI, but uh, they said, we have no sympathy for terrorists. Oh, right. right. But, but, but. <laughs> uh, really, I, you know they, um, when you're saying we have no sympathy for terrorists, when you feel you have to say that, you've already lost most of your audience. Uh,
1: well, but, but as you pointed out before, query whether they have or whether they're their vision of where the public is, is, you know, whether the public is is profoundly uncommunitarian in their desire to have, you know, uh, tech companies that represent their privacy interests. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think we are at a moment... Where we're going to start finding out. So Jonathan Zittrain wrote
0: a book called "The uh, The Future of
1: the Internet" on how to stop it, if
0: I remember. And and, and his book. yeah. in and, and, and one of his theories was, uh, um, and Tim Wu has has said much the same, it, it, that. Um, Gradually, with new technologies, um, they are colonized by successful oligopolists, uh, and the oligopolists gradually accommodate themselves to government in ways that uh, uh, coincidentally create barriers to entry for new competitors. Uh, and we may be starting to see that, uh, uh, and... Indeed, I think the whole principle behind Section 230, which used to be globally recognized, uh, is increasingly viewed as a peculiarity of American law. Uh, other countries are quite happy saying, oh, Twitter, you can't have hate speech. What are you talking about? Uh, and we'll hold you liable for what uh, uh, these right-wingers are saying. Um, and they have had to learn to start policing their users in ways that please governments around the world. Uh, And that means a gradual accommodation, loss of 230 effectively. And so the question for the U.S. is uh, on what terms are people going to lose their 230 protection here as well? Next question. You had a question, right?
1: Hi, I'm Sarah. I work for a UK-based NGO that tracks political violence. Uh, my question is about countering violent extremism. And I'm wondering to what extent um, the, the new uh, State
5: Department policy on CVE is separating uh, the military's role
1: in CVE on the ground and the role in Washington using social media and other uh, forms. In particular, I'm wondering, to what extent is it possible to separate CVE um, in the Middle East from Washington, and what are some of the strategies we can do to make that more successful?
0: Tamara?
2: Uh, It's a great question. I I think that there are a couple of... um, of bureaucratic drivers here that we have to be upfront about. Uh, the first, of course, is that since 9-11, um, the Pentagon and the intelligence community have demonstrated the, an ability to innovate, to generate new tools, to apply them in effective ways uh, against the terrorist threat. And the civilian side of the executive branch has kind of struggled to keep up there was a lot of discussion of this at the beginning of the Obama administration about authorities and funds that have flowed to the Pentagon that both uh, the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State felt should flow back in the other direction. And the buildup of, of the theory of the case for civilian CVE, I think, has been a slow process in the State Department, but it's definitely part of that bureaucratic effort. Um, the, the one piece I think that has been the most challenging is the, the communications piece. Um, and the State Department has tried a lot of different, um, models or different approaches in doing counter messaging or counter narrative, uh, without demonstrating a lot of success. I think, you know, partly because it's a very hard problem. Um, but partly because the State Department hasn't been able to go out into the field and and apply tools in local languages in local contexts, the the military has a lot of capabilities around the world to do comms, and it's built those capabilities up over the last couple of decades in a bunch of different contexts, and so it could kind of leap into that space, and it's not going to give it up because it sees comms as an important part of its overall. Uh, operations and its overall toolbox. So I think the communications piece and the State Department's Global Engagement Center is probably the hardest uh, place to draw the line. But one of the messages I took away from Tony Blinken's speech is that that is not the main focus of the State Department effort. That the main focus is in uh, the programming that is out in communities helping uh social institutions and religious institutions and local governments, push back against people who are trying to radicalize young people, recognize people who are at risk and kind of wrap them in a warm embrace and deal with underlying grievances and things like that, um, which is the sweet spot for the civilian infrastructure in the State Department. Um, the risk, though, is that CDE then becomes an umbrella bureaucratic umbrella for everything good that the State Department wants to do out there in those communities
0: so let me let me offer a couple of ideas. Uh, um, we probably don 't need more gs fourteens tweeting um, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> This is the list of things Stewart thinks are ridiculous <laughs> <Yes, exactly. laughs> it 's shorter though uh, 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 what's, what I think is interesting is that It's now been 15 years since 9-11, and we brought all our technology for countering terrorism up to date as of 2001. (laughs) What has happened since 2001 is the social media revolution, and that we have not figured out how to engage social media in dealing with counterterrorism. But I have two or three thoughts on that. Uh, um, One... um, Social media, uh, coming up with content for social media is really hard, uh, as witness all those GS 14s locked in the basement of the State Department. Uh, and it's unlikely to be enormously effective. Uh, deprecating content is a lot easier and maybe more effective. It, it is something that uh, government uh, and, and social media does all the time. They say, there are some tweets you all want to get and some tweets you don't care about. Uh, and uh, we will serve you the stuff that you should want, that you do want. Uh, and finding ways to start taking messages uh, that... Uh, directly counter some of the uh, violent extremism uh, in effective ways because you can see what's effective by A-B testing it uh, and then start serving the more successful messages uh, and getting the cooperation of the social media companies to do that. Uh, That's a a new approach that I think is more likely to be effective than the things we've talked about uh, thus far. And then my last idea um, is social media is obviously a great recruiting tool uh, um, and but uh, uh, social media also allows you to see where that message is going, who's receptive to the message, uh, and then to um, uh, identify all the people who are retweeting those messages. And remarkably, because it's social media... All their moms. <laughs> uh, and you can, you can go and talk to their moms about what their kids are tweeting, and that for, for 60, 70% of the people who've been tweeting, that's the last tweet they're going to send on that topic. Uh, uh, it's a brilliant solution to, uh, um, as a way of countering violent extremism. So that's my, my proposal. I'm going to call that the Mom Squad. It's
2: the, the Mom Empowerment CVE all right. Strategy. Last, last question. question. Last question. Good evening. My name is Catherine Davis. I'm a law clerk. Earlier, the panel mentioned a growing analogy between smartphones and uh, the judicial protection of the home as a man's castle in the American tradition. I'd love to hear the panel unpack what you think of that analogy. I, I think of my smartphone as more like my purse. You know, there are a lot of things that a woman puts into the purse over the course of the day. She doesn't clean it out very often. There are many things she would not like other people to see her carrying around in her purse. So I, I think that might be a better analogy.
4: I, when I first met my husband, he referred to a smartphone as a digital shackle. I think was the word that <laughs> was uh, was used. And it, I, I, I I like to actually think of my home as a as a refuge and my phone is almost like a burden. But yeah, I mean, at tomorrow's point, I mean, I. I increasingly terrified by all the things that i find on the phone that i didn't know i put there or texts that i didn't know i sent or impertinent things that i said and uh yeah i mean i feel more protective about the phone in some ways than i do my own house because if you came into my house it would take you a while to poke around there and you know put you know sort of put my trail together and do my profile on my phone it would take you about you know five minutes
1: so uh about a year ago i wrote a a, uh maybe more than a year ago now i wrote a uh, paper uh, with a young woman named Jane Chong, uh, uh, reflecting on the possibility that uh, we were actually really cyborgs and that the difference between the cyborg who has this thing implanted inside the head and us is really not that great. We're completely glued to it. I don't think the home is the right analogy. Um, the right analogy is your brain that you know that when you do not have this when you 're not at home you don 't feel naked or that something 's missing or that your you know arm 's been cut off but think about the last time you didn 't have your phone, and it wasn 't because you chose to to be in a refuge right it was because you know, you'd left it somewhere, and you felt cut off and disconnected, and there was something really wrong.
2: Uh, and isn't think- that more psychological? Like we're all monkeys hitting the bar to get another piece of food. Sure. And- well, there, we there, are. There's, there's undoubtedly a there's undoubtedly a
1: component of that, but I think there's also a fact that we are we are less independent organisms than we think we are now, and 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 the the unit is this. That is, the, the, the person and the machine in integration with one another, not simply the person. And so I, I'm, I'm not convinced that the home is the right uh, – I, I think this, the Schwarzenegger is the right <laughs> metaphor. So I, uh,
0: with that, I can only say this is your brain, but this, pointing to the audience, is your brain on lawfare. Woo! And rational so, security. Thank you all. This has been a terrific presentation. And this has been Episode 101 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, coming up, we're going to have an interview with Glenn Gerstle of the National Security Agency, Phil Reidinger of Global Cybersecurity Alliance, uh, uh, some experts on Bitcoin coming back to us. And then on March 3rd, we'll be recording at the RSA Conference in San Francisco, California, where we hope our uh, fans and uh, uh, Detractors alike will join us uh, uh, for the podcast and for uh, discussions afterwards. Uh, We hope you'll join us there as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.